You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. Can you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8? Mark chapter 8 this morning. Uh, We're getting into a new series, and so uh, that's where we're going to be for the whole morning. Uh, But as you're turning there, let me just ask you this. How many of you have ever seen uh, the the series on Disney Plus, uh, Forky Asks a Question? Anybody ever seen that? Uh, any like maybe a couple right like okay so if you're if you haven't seen Forky asked a question you are missing out and let me just tell you do yourself a favor go home if you have Disney Plus turn it on and and watch Forky asked a question because uh, it's from the makers of Pixar uh, the you know the creators Pixar and like in my opinion those are the most brilliant people in the world um, they, they're they're way smarter than the SpaceX people like Pixar is where it's at and. Um, and they took this character, Forky, from their, uh, their last Toy Story movie, Toy Story 4, and, and they made a series of short films uh, out of him. And, and so uh, you can see in the picture, Forky is like a child's craft. Uh, he was created by this little girl named Bonnie on the first day of kindergarten in, uh, in, in craft time. And so she took uh, a spork, which is ironic, right, because he's named Forky and he's a spork. And, uh, and she, she, you know, put some popsicle stick feet on him and, uh, and some, some pipe cleaner arms. And because she loved him as her toy, he came to life. But that's kind of where the confusion is, because he was resurrected from the, uh, the scrap pile, and he kind of thinks that he's still trash. And so throughout Toy Story 4, he's trying to like jump in the trash can, because that's where he thinks that he belongs, that's where he's comfortable, and... Um, and he really, like, he, he, it's funny because he knows all kinds of words, but he doesn't know what any of them mean. And so he's asking consistently, like, what does this mean? Like, what is, what, and it's real existential stuff. Like, what is the meaning of life? And, and, and what is love? And, and so what the Pixar creators did was, in order to maximize their, their return on this character, they created a series of short films called Forky Asks a Question. And each film opens up with the narrator saying, Forky asks a question, and then Forky says, I don't know, and, and then he, he just continues on, and each, each film is, is a different question, like, like, what is love? What is cheese? What is money? And, and, and he's asking a different toy this uh, each time, and, and because he doesn't understand, and because they sometimes have a hard time explaining, the conversation can just go round and around and around, and you're never quite sure if you actually get to the definition of the thing that he's trying to define. And as I thought about today's sermon, and really this series, uh, the, the title of the sermon today is, is What is a Disciple? And the series is, is The Way. And it, the, the purpose of all of this kind of reminded me a lot of Forky. Because disciple and discipleship are, are words that we use a lot in the church. Like, we know that the mission of the church from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, is to go and make disciples of all nations. And we know, most of us know that, that Jesus had 12 disciples. Like, that's kind of a, a commonly known fact, right? And, and we also, uh, you know, say that one of our values as a church is purposeful discipleship. But when we ask the question real pointed, like, what is a disciple? Or what is discipleship? 
the conversation can kind of become like one of Forky's questions with his friends. Like we can go round and around and around and still maybe never get to the definition that Jesus gave for disciples and discipleship. And maybe you're new to the church, maybe you're new to Christianity, and you sort of feel like Forky when, when you come up against words like disciple or, or discipleship. And, and maybe, you know, like, like in the movie Toy Story 4, Woody comes alongside him and, and he just, they take a really long walk together and he just answers all of his questions. And uh, maybe that's what you need. And that's okay. That's okay. Listen, we want to be that for you. We want to do that for you. And I pray that this series would start all sorts of conversations where we can walk alongside you and answer those. But even if you've been around the church for a long time, chances are if I asked this question, what is a disciple to every single individual here, which I'm going to do later, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. Chances are I would get all kinds of different answers. And Back in July, we asked a sampling of our members and our staff and our leaders to, to take a, a church health assessment uh, through the Great Commission Collective. It's one of the great things that, that we get to have access to through that relationship. And, and we wanted to see where we needed to focus our attention in the next season of ministry. And uh, one of the clear ways that we needed to grow was we needed to define how we make disciples we need to define what is sometimes called a purposeful discipleship pathway. Like, what are the paths that we have identified in our church that help disciples grow? It was kind of evident that we know that we're supposed to make disciples. Like, we know that. But not everyone understands how we are intentionally seeking to do that in our context. And so that's what prompted this series. We want to make sure that we're very clear how... Oak Hill Fellowship Church is seeking to make disciples and what that means and what that looks like. If we are called to make disciples and to purposeful discipleship, then it's critical that we as a local body would have a common understanding of what a disciple is and how a disciple is made. Wouldn't you agree? Like, don't we need some common speak on that, right? And so the vision for this series is simple. Uh, here, here's what we hope as we kind of close out the year 2020 and we get into uh, 2021. We hope to see every person taking their next step in the way of a disciple together. Every person taking their next step in the way of a disciple together. So every person, every person, that includes you, whether you're a, a child or a teenager or an adult, whether you're a new believer or an unbeliever still or, or uh, kind of on the fence, you're not quite sure. Maybe you've been a believer a very long time. Every person taking their next step, taking your next step, not, not all the steps, your next step. And sometimes when we think about discipleship or we look at the definition of what a disciple is, we're like a little bit overwhelmed and it's just like all coming at us at once. And how, am I, how do you expect, me to, you expect me to be perfect? What are you expecting, Lord? No, the next step, the next step, and then the next step after that. The next step in the way of a disciple. So Jesus has some patterns of life that he wants every single disciple to embrace. There are patterns that he is leading us in and they're revealed in his word. Like, like if you want to know God's will for your life, if you want to know his calling for your life, uh, you just go to his word. 
He's laid out the basic beliefs and characters, traits, and responsibilities for every disciple in every area of life. And if we study the New Testament closely, we begin to see patterns emerge regarding the basic ways that Jesus wants us to live. So at Oak Hill, what we've done is we've taken those patterns and we've organized them and summarized them in the gospel and the way of a disciple. And those are our church membership statements, but, but we don't just want those membership statements to exist in the back of our constitution that nobody ever reads. Or somewhere on our website that you might read the first time that you want to check out Oak Hill, but you never return to after that. We want those things to play an active role in our discipleship. We don't want them to be like a checklist that we could just kind of check off and say, okay, look, we've arrived. Okay, I agree to it. That's fine. But we want them to be something that we look at and say, oh, you know, now I'm reminded of this part of God's word, and I believe that God wants me to grow in this way. The way of a disciple is about the journey that we are walking together in Christ and toward Christ. And we are doing it together. Look at your neighbor and say, we're in this together. We're in this together, right? And discipleship is not a solo sport. We don't grow alone. We grow in community. Don't feel like you have to figure this all out on your own. We, we need others to help us grow. And, and part of being a disciple is meant, means that we are sent to make disciples as well. And, and that might scare you. Again, take the next step. Take the next step. Every person taking their next step in the way of a disciple together. That's our goal. That's our goal this morning. Now, the format of this series is going to be a little bit different. Uh, We often study a whole book of the Bible at a time, and so, like, we just finished up Philippians. Um, Here, uh, we're going to be studying a key passage from different books over the next six weeks. And I've selected each of these passages. It's still expository preaching because we're digging into God's word in a specific passage. We're seeing what he reveals there. But I've selected each of these passages because each one clearly answers a different key question about discipleship. And so instead of Forky asks a question, you can sort of think of this as Pastor Ben asks a question. And I don't know, but God's word does. God's word does. The question for us this morning is, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? It it might seem incredibly basic to some of you. It might be like, yeah, I was really wondering that my whole time I was here at Oak Hill. But we want to answer that question from Mark chapter 8 this morning in this way. A disciple is someone who is growing in their dependence on and devotion to Jesus. A disciple is someone who is growing in their dependence on and devotion to Jesus. I'd encourage you, I'd challenge you to commit that definition to memory. We'll probably bring it up over the next several weeks. A disciple is someone who is growing in their dependence on and devotion to Jesus. And we're going to dig into that definition in Mark chapter 8. 
Uh, now, your Bibles are open there, and I know you're eager, eager to get into the Word. I had to set up the series. I had to explain to you why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, but let me just give you a little bit of context, because uh, before we dig into any passage, we want to understand what we're holding in our hands, right? Like, if you're, if you're reading the Bible, you don't just, like, jump into a passage and read one verse and say, whatever. No, we want to, we want to understand how that fits into the whole book, into the Bible itself. And so, uh, the book of Mark that our Bibles are open to, was written by John Mark. Uh, Mark was likely in the crowds that surrounded Jesus. He he likely had some direct connection to Jesus himself. Later on, we find him traveling with Barnabas and Paul. Some, he kind of flaked out, so Barnabas, uh, you know, took him under his wing and, and discipled him. And then later, he went, he was back on Paul's team, and at some point, he was with the apostle Peter as well. And uh, he spent a good bit of time with Peter, and tradition would say that, that Mark's gospel is a compilation of Peter's eyewitness accounts about Jesus. Mark gives us a description of this book that we have in our hands. In the first few words of, of, of his writing, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's giving us right out of the gate. What is he intending to write about? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So his intent was to give us the gospel. The the good news that Jesus is the Christ, which is the Greek for the Hebrew term Messiah. And we're going to talk about what those terms mean in just a moment. But in order to lay this out, that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, Mark takes us on a little journey with Jesus through three sections of the book. The first section of the book is primarily in Judea and Samaria, uh, far away from Jerusalem. And you can think of that that first section as uh, Jesus is hinting about who he is and what he does. So he's healing people. He's telling parables where his, his identity is kind of veiled. He's far away from Jerusalem and he's hinting, okay? Then the middle section of the book gets a little bit closer. You can kind of think of it as on the way, not necessarily geographically, but definitely in purpose. Uh, so uh, Jesus there is showing clearly who he is and what he does. And then the last section of the book is in Jerusalem. So, so in Judea, Samaria, on the way, and then in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, Jesus is proving who he is and what he does. That's the point at which he dies on the cross and rises again. And so the the section that our Bibles are open to now comes very near the beginning of this middle section. Uh, Jesus is plainly showing the disciples who he is. He's just asked the disciples two very important questions. Uh, First of all, who do people in general say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And then secondly, uh, he says, who do you say that I am? And that's a question that every single person in this room needs to come to grips with today. Who do you say that Jesus is? And we see a clear difference between people generally in the crowds and his disciples. You see, I'm going to explain this more later, but it boils down to this. The, the crowds, the, the people in general, thought that Jesus was a good teacher. He was a, a prophet, maybe. But the disciples believed that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that context sets us up to understand Mark 8, 31 and following. Read with me down in your copy of God's Word. 
And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. A disciple is someone who is growing in their dependence on and devotion to Jesus. We can see three parts of that definition very clearly here in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to work our way backward uh, from the most important word in that sentence. The, the most important word in that definition, it's, it's all in capital letters, it's the most important person to any disciple, and that's Jesus. Jesus, that's what we care about. At the heart of the way of a disciple is Jesus. In fact, Jesus said of himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if we want to talk about the way, we got to talk about Jesus, right? The way of a disciple is a journey deeper and deeper into the heart of Jesus. Disciples set their mind on Jesus as Savior and Lord or as Lord and Savior, however you want to put it. So the disciples have just confessed that, that Jesus is the Christ, which is a huge deal. But, but Jesus wants us to make sure that they understand what they're saying. Because we can use terms, right, that, that we don't understand. It's easy to word, use words like Christ or, or disciple and, and not really understand what it means. So like Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It, it's, it, it's the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah. And so, so Jesus brings some definition to this word Christ. And it's going to help them understand what it means to be a disciple of this Christ. And he does this by describing two essential truths that we must believe about him, that he is Lord and Savior. Now, maybe you're thinking, like, I didn't see those words in, in that text. Good, I'm glad you're asking those questions. Let me show you. Uh, first, Jesus is Lord. So Jesus calls himself the, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And, and that might not mean too much for, to us. Maybe we just think that it, he's talking about how he's human. Uh, but really, to the disciples, it would have been a term that was rich with meaning about his authority and power and dominion. It was the description that 
was used in Daniel 7 of a figure who would be given absolute authority. We, we studied Daniel over the summer, right? Uh, that was such a rich and beautiful study. And uh, in Daniel 7, let me just remind you, uh, this is what Daniel saw. He saw the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. The Son of Man is one who has absolute authority. Uh, The word that we would more commonly use today is Lord. David did such a great job describing that for us and setting our hearts there this morning. So Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, but then he ties this title to another familiar concept in the Old Testament, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 describes the servant of the Lord who bears the sins of the people of Israel. And and here's just a sampling of this chapter so that maybe you can hear a little bit of, of what would have been in the disciples' mind and heart as they understood what Jesus was saying. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men. This is what your Savior did for you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. That's why he was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He took our punishment for us. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There's life after this crushing. There's life after this death. So the disciples should have, at least should have, recalled these verses when Jesus said that he must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But we have to understand that the disciples would not have understood these two figures, the Son of Man and the suffering servant, as the same person. That wasn't part of their Jewish theology class. And Jesus is revealing something that is mind-boggling to them that they can't grab hold of yet. That both of these figures are fulfilled in one person, in Him. He is Lord and Savior. That Jesus is the Savior. He is the suffering servant. Really, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus is telling the disciples what He's going to do to accomplish their salvation. He is in ultimate control of all of the events that are about to take place. He can give it in detail before it even happens. That He must suffer and be rejected He must be killed. He must rise again. 
God ordained it. The scriptures foretold it. Salvation requires it. And it will happen just as Jesus says it will. And we know on this side of the cross that it did happen just as he said it would. And this is the essential truth that a disciple must believe, that Jesus is Savior and Lord over all. That's the gospel. We believe all of who Jesus is or we don't believe at all. And the problem is that it's easy to nod our heads and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That sounds good. It's easier to do that than it is to really wrestle with that truth in our lives and to conform our hearts to what that means. And Mark tells us that Jesus spoke plainly about these things, but the disciples are going to wrestle with it here. And, and, and Peter pulls him aside, and he's like, yeah, Jesus, you're speaking plainly, but we've got to have a little side conversation here. Like, Jesus, you just told us we were right about the whole Christ thing. You're not supposed to tell us that you're going to suffer and die. You're not supposed to tell us that you're going to lose to the religious leaders. We're supposed to have the one up on them. Probably not a great idea to rebuke the Son of Man. Notice what Mark tells us in verse 33. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now, I just always ask that question, like, why does Mark include that little phrase, turning and seeing his disciples? Right? Like Peter's brought him aside. Why doesn't he just like rebuke Peter privately just like Peter had the courtesy to do to him? And I believe it's because that Jesus knew that Peter wasn't speaking only for himself. That Peter, as the, as the leader of the group and the one who was most vocal, was the only one who had the guts to speak up and say, I don't get this, Lord. I really struggle with this concept. And that as he rebuked Peter, he needed to do so for the benefit of all. Disciples believe that Jesus is the Christ. But they still need to grow in their understanding of what that means. Do we ever find ourselves there? Do you ever find yourself there? Like needing to grow in your understanding of what it means for Jesus to be Savior and Lord over all all, over every square inch of this cosmos, over every square inch of your life. And so he addresses Peter directly, but he does it so all understand. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so those are some pretty strong words. Like, what's with the name calling, Jesus? That's not polite. But Jesus is pointing to the massive importance of this rebuke for their hearts. If your mind is set on the things of God, you're going to see the beautiful truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and you will believe. If your mind is set on the things of man, you will never believe the truth of who Jesus is because it exceeds man's understanding and knowledge, which is exactly what Satan wants. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. I think it helps us understand. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, Satan has blinded the minds. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And to not believe in Jesus, to set your mind on the things of man, is to be blinded by Satan himself. It's satanic. And to believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord is a supernatural work of God in our hearts. It's a work that Jesus is doing right here in Peter's life. He's opening Peter's eyes to the supernatural nature of belief. When, when Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ over in Matthew, he said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And it's a work that he must do in all of our lives. See, Peter can't deal with the truth that Je- of what Jesus is saying because Peter is dealing with Jesus from a human perspective. And his human perspective is bound by Satan and sin. Now, now don't worry about Peter. He's going to see the resurrected Jesus. He's going to be okay. The Spirit's going to take over his life, and he's going to follow Jesus all the way to death. But for for us today, to walk in the way of a disciple means that we set our mind on the things of God. We believe that he is Savior and Lord. What Jesus says to Peter is the essence of belief. It's setting our minds on the things of God. This word for setting our mind is the the same word that Paul used over and over in the book of Philippians that we just finished studying. It involves agreeing with God. If we're going to set our mind on the things of God, we're agreeing with God about all things. And The Bible says that in order to set our mind on the things of God, we must repent of setting our mind on the things of man. Repentance means changing our minds to agree with God. So we use this definition at Oak Hill a lot for repentance because I I think we can misunderstand it a lot. Uh, Repentance is agreeing with God about who he is and what he has done in such a way that changes our understanding of who we are and what we must do. Repentance is agreeing with God about who he is and what he has done which changes our mind in such a way that we, it changes our understanding of who we are and what we must do. So it's first a change of mind, and then it's a change of action that follows up. It's first a change of mind about God and who He is that then reflects on who we are and what we must do. We turn from our sin, and we trust Jesus for our life. We put off the old and we put on the new. That's repentance. And Peter needed to change his mind to believe what was true about Jesus. That's why Jesus is rebuking rebuking him so strongly. Disciples set their minds on Jesus. Who he really is. Not who they want him to be. See, Peter had his mind set on who he wanted Jesus to be. The Christ was supposed to come and bring victory and restore power to Israel. And if he's a disciple of Christ, then he's supposed to have a seat in this court. 
But Peter didn't want to believe that that Jesus' path to the throne was through suffering and death. Today, a lot of people believe in Jesus as they want him to be. They like the idea of him saving them from hell, but not actively saving them from their sinful habits. They like the idea of Jesus being loving as long as that means approving of everything that they want to do. They like the idea of Jesus being gracious as long as that means that his grace involves them giving them a healthy and prosperous life. At Christmas, we tolerate Jesus as long as he stays small and a baby in the manger. But we must believe in all of who Jesus is. He is Savior and Lord. And we must repent of setting our mind on the things of man and set our mind on the things of God. Do you believe Jesus as he has revealed himself to be? Make that real for yourself. Like, do, do I believe Jesus as he has revealed himself to be? Or do I believe in who I want Jesus to be? Which, by the way, is a figment of our imagination. This is really what distinguished the disciples from the crowd. They were continually growing to set their mind on Jesus. So, so we see two groups that are distinguished in verse 34. Look down at verse 34 in your Bibles. Notice Mark says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Two distinct groups, the crowd and disciples. So all throughout the Gospels, we see these two groups form around Jesus, the disciples and the crowd, the crowd and the disciples. And so you can kind of picture this like a target. It's up on the screen for you. Jesus is the bullseye. He's the center of the target. And the people who are closest to him are his disciples. Now, now it's important that we understand that, that the word disciples does not only refer to the 12 disciples. So when we see that here in verse 34, it's not only talking about 12 people that are with him. It's referring to a group of people that is growing, and they are the group that is actually following Jesus. They, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, and they go all in on following him. So when he speaks, they believe him. When he commands, they seek to obey him. When he rebukes, they repent. When he moves, they go with him. And they aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they are growing. So the 12 disciples uh, who would later become apostles are, are within this group, but they are not the whole of this group. They're not the only ones in this group. And the group of disciples is then distinguished from the crowd. The crowd. And the crowd formed because they were intrigued by what Jesus was doing and teaching. They saw his miracles, and they're like, I want some of that. They, they heard his message, and they were sort of interested, hoping he might be the political ruler or the prophet that they had been waiting for. The, the buzz was really surrounding Jesus. But we need to understand this. Jesus wasn't interested in building crowds for the sake of building crowds. He was intent on calling people to be his disciples. That's why he consistently says hard words to the crowds. Things like we would never want to say if we were trying to get a whole bunch of people to come and follow us. 
He wants to weed out the true disciples from the half-hearted, self-focused masses. See, really, the, the crowd was sort of interested in Jesus, but they had a lot more in common with the world than they do with the disciples. They're still part of the world because they've not fully embraced Jesus by faith. They're interested in Jesus for what he can do for them. And whether that's his political deliverance or his physical healing, whatever it is, they, they want what he can do for them. Really, the way of a disciple is about the trajectory of our heart. Am I moving toward Jesus? Am I continually seeking to be filled with Jesus? Or am I only viewing Jesus from afar? With a heart that's divided between Jesus and the world. I want you to understand the purpose of the church is not to build crowds. It's to make disciples. We love the people in the crowds. We love them enough to say hard words and help them find their life in Jesus. But the goal is to build disciples. We, we see these two types of people sitting in the pews of churches today all over the world. We see those whose mind are set on Jesus and their, as their only source in life. He is their only Savior and Lord. That, that's the way of a disciple. But then we see those who are going to just hang out in the crowd. They, they, they come to church. They, they say they believe in Jesus. Maybe, maybe they say, I've, I've always believed. But they do not follow him. We call these nominal Christians, which means Christians in name only. They're, they're not actually Christians. They're, they're not Christ followers. Christian means little Christ. It means I'm seeking to grow up into Christ. That They call themselves believers of Jesus, but they do not live like he is Savior and Lord. So I want you to understand this. This is one of the most important things that I could say all day. You get nothing else, get this. There is no difference between a genuine believer and a disciple. There is no difference. A disciple is not different than a true believer in Jesus. Discipleship and disciples are not some second tier of saved people. If you're not a disciple, you're not a genuine believer. You are not saved. You are not born again. A genuine believer of Jesus is a disciple because they believe with all of their life that Jesus is Savior and Lord. You, you can't say, I believe Jesus is Savior and Lord, and then just like kind of go ho-hum all about your business elsewhere and not care about that. Like he rose from the dead. And I'm not saying that disciples are perfect in their following. I, I'm saying that they consistently turn from setting their mind on the things of man to setting their mind on the things of God. The mark of a disciple is repentance and faith in their lives. Some people in this room today are going to realize I'm still part of the crowd. Like They're going to think that they've believed in Jesus. They've spent a lot of time around him and his people. 
They've done some things that Christians do. They know the language. They've checked the boxes. But at the heart of it, they believe who they wanted Jesus to be instead of who he actually is. A Savior and Lord. If that's you, if God is opening your eyes to that fact right now, don't be embarrassed. Don't, don't run from that. Embrace Jesus. That, that's the gracious work of God in your life. That's what he wants to show you today. And if you are a disciple, you're like, I, I'm not perfect, but I, I know how to repent. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I've become a professional at identifying sin and then needing to turn from that and actually walking in that. If you are a disciple, understand what Jesus is calling you to in making disciples. He doesn't tell us to invite them into the crowd. He calls us to show them who Jesus really is. That's why making disciples is not the same as inviting someone to church. Like, don't hear me wrong. You can invite them to church, and they're going to hear Jesus proclaimed here, and, and we're happy for that, absolutely. If you're part of the crowd this morning and you're still trying to figure this out, we're happy that you're here. Just don't stay at that place. But maybe what the person in the crowd needs to see and hear even more is your conviction that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And understand that that's what it would mean for them to become part of the church. The purpose of Jesus was not to build the crowd. It was to make disciples who were growing in their dependence and their devotion to him. Back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus wants to make sure that every disciple and every person in the crowd understands what that means. He, he wants to make sure that we know that following Jesus is as simple as believing, but it's not going to be easy. Verse 34 and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The disciples set their mind on Jesus. So working our way backward, then through the definition, we see this next part in verse 34. Disciples are devoted to Jesus. Disciples are devoted to Jesus. When Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he's using the same phrase that he did to rebuke Peter when he said, get behind me. The, the clear emphasis is that Jesus is first. Jesus determines the way his disciples go. Where he goes, the disciples get behind. They follow him. And so where did Jesus just say that his life would take him? Think about this. Where did Jesus just say his life would take him? Suffering, rejection, death, and then resurrection. And so if disciples come after Jesus, if they're going to follow him, what should they expect their lives to look like? Suffering, rejection, death, and then resurrection. See, Jesus makes clear in his call that following him is not the easy life. It's not your best life now, as the world would want you to believe. It's not the most physically comfortable, most 
physically safe, most earthly successful, most well-preserved life. But it is the only life that will last. And so following Jesus involves three acts of devotion, Jesus says. Uh, First, we need to deny ourselves. So think about it. Who are we most naturally devoted to? They point to the person who we are most naturally devoted to. That right here. Who do we work the hardest to protect and preserve from the day we are born? Right here. Who do we think about the most? Ourself. Who, who do we listen to the most? Ourself. Who do we think is right most of the time? Ourself. And so if we are going to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, it means that we need to stop acting like we are Savior and Lord. If we're going to follow Jesus, that means our desires, our physical comfort, our pleasure, our control, none of that is ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. Now that doesn't mean that we equate being miserable with being godly. Okay? This is is not a a call to have no joy in your life. In in fact, this is the way to true joy. One commentator put it this way, uh, by denial of self, Jesus does not mean to deny oneself something. He means to renounce self, to cease to make the self the object of one's life and actions. This involves a fundamental reorientation of the principle of life. God, not self, must be at the center of life. Or we could quote the Apostle Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for Disciples have been crucified with Christ. And and even Christ denied himself in the way that he lived. We just saw this in our our study in the book of Philippians. Uh, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves. To live devoted to Jesus means we deny ourselves just like Jesus did. Our mind must be set on him, not ourselves. And then just like Jesus, we must take up our cross. Take up our cross. That, that's the second act of devotion to Jesus. Now, that's not literally like picking up a piece of wood and carrying it around on your back. It, it, it's not like the truck that drives around with the cross in the back of the pickup. I mean, I, I don't know why he does that. That's fine if he, you know. That's not it. It's not that we impose suffering upon our lives or that we never try to alleviate suffering in our lives. It simply means that we embrace the reality that the way of Jesus will mean suffering and possibly death. The the natural outcome of following a suffering Savior is suffering. 
To take up our cross is to say whatever suffering or discomfort or danger or, or, or crucifixion to my fleshly desires, whatever it is that following Jesus might bring today, I'm willing to embrace it. Devotion to Jesus means that we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and finally follow Jesus. We learned this prayer a few weeks back. Hopefully you're still praying it often. But Father, lead me in the way of Jesus today. Lead me in the way of Jesus today. Wherever Jesus is working by his spirit, that's where I want to be. Whatever he's doing, that's what I want to do. Whatever reflects him, that's what I want to think about. Whatever responsibility he's called me to, that's what I want to fulfill. Whatever character traits are his, that's what I want to mark my life. Whoever he wants me to serve, that's who I want to serve. Devotion means that the pattern of our life takes the pattern of Jesus' life. Disciples are devoted to Jesus. So do a little self-check. Do your choices reflect devotion to yourself or devotion to Jesus? And maybe you're like, that, that sets the bar pretty high, though. Like, I don't know if I can live out that kind of devotion. What if I fall short of that? What if I stop following? What if I can't do it? What if I can't live up to the way of a disciple? And that's where this last part of our definition becomes so critical. So critical. This is what we often miss when we think about living our lives as disciples. Disciples aren't devoted because they are capable. Disciples are devoted because they are dependent. Disciples aren't devoted because they are capable. Disciples are devoted because they are dependent. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Disciples are dependent on Jesus as their only source of life. Disciples are dependent on Jesus as their only source of life. So to deny ourselves, we have to rely on another. If I'm going to say, not me, then there has to be something else that takes place of me. And that's Jesus. And our biggest problem in life is that we spend all our time trying to save ourselves. We try to be the best possible person we can be. We try in our own power to walk in the way of a disciple in order to earn favor with God. And it's impossible. We do the things that we believe will earn us higher rewards in life. We think, if I, if I just try harder, I can improve my character. We think, if I just make this change or that adjustment in my life, then I can have peace, I can have hope, I can have love. We think, there's nothing that a little money can't fix. We think, if I do something bad, then I'll just try to make it up with enough good things. We think, as long as I hide my faults so that no one else can see, as long as they don't affect anyone else, then I'm going to be okay. And Jesus says that all of these attempts at saving yourself will actually lead you to lose your life. Because we can do nothing 
to save our soul. We could have all of the wealth and control and security imaginable, but verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? In other words, your soul is the most valuable thing that you have. He says, for what is it? What can a man give in return for his soul? Your soul is the most valuable thing that you have, but you can do nothing to save it. You are entirely dependent on someone else to save it. When we try to save our own souls, whether that is through seeking control or wealth or self-righteousness, when we try to save our own souls, when we try to save our own life, it keeps us from confessing that Jesus is the only one who can truly save us. We talked about this at the end of October, that relying on self will actually keep us from relying on Jesus. We don't overcome sin by looking inward. We overcome sin by looking upward at the one who lived and died and rose again for us. We overcome sin by looking more intently upon the way, the truth, and the life. That's how we come to the Father. That's how we grow in godliness. We need to stop trying to save ourselves instead, and instead lose our lives for Jesus Christ. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. We need to stop looking at the stuff of this world to give us a sense of identity or security or comfort and instead say, my life belongs to you, Jesus. Because you are my Savior and Lord. I really believe that. And when we try to save ourselves, the outcome is this, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. So there is a day coming when it will be proven that every effort to save yourself is futile. When Jesus returns to judge the world, he won't be asking, uh, who here said they were a Christian? He won't be asking, who lived a good life? Who was a generally good person? He won't be asking, uh, who attended church and was part of the crowd? He won't be saying, who checked all the boxes and did their devotions every day? He'll be saying, who trusted me with their life? Who put their trust and hope in me and nothing else? It's the disciples who lose their life for the sake of Jesus and the Gospels who will save it. They go all in. They put all their eggs in the Jesus basket. They spend themselves to know Jesus. That's what it means to lose your life for the sake of Jesus, right? For Jesus' sake. But then he says, and also for the gospel's sake, they they spend themselves to proclaim Jesus. And when we follow Jesus like that, the beauty is that we don't have to wait until resurrection to see his power at work. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death 
until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now we read that verse and we're like, wait a minute. Like, aren't all these guys already dead? And like, Jesus hasn't returned yet. And what's, what's going on here? But listen, Jesus isn't talking about his return. He's talking about the kingdom coming in power. The, the promise is fulfilled in the next verse when Jesus takes three of his disciples up on a mountain and unveils his glory before them, Peter, James, and John. And then it's, it's fulfilled even more when Jesus rises from the dead and they all see his glorified body and then he ascends into heaven and they see him going up into the clouds and he says, I'm going to return. And then he, but he says, and you're going to receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and his power is seen and his kingdom is seen when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. When we lose our lives for the sake of knowing and proclaiming Jesus, we get a front row seat to the glory of God. We get to experience what true life is now. That's the beauty of the way of a disciple. It is the way to true life. A disciple is someone who is dependent on and devoted to Jesus. So our goal in this series is to take the next step. The worship team can come. I want to leave you with a question after each sermon to help you take the next step. And the question is this. Discern. Are you a disciple according to this definition? Or are you part of the crowd? Are you a disciple according to this definition or are you a part of the crowd? If you discover that you aren't a disciple of Jesus, then you need to Count the cost. Not only of counting the cost of following Jesus, like it does cost something. We need to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. But we also need to count the cost of not following Jesus. Not following Jesus means we lose our life for all of eternity. We we miss out on what it means to truly live. And then once you count the cost, I would urge you, set your mind on Jesus as the only Savior and Lord, and then follow him. Follow him. We're, we're going to talk more next week about what it means to become a disciple. I'd encourage you, come back for that. But if you're at that place and you're wondering that now and you can't wait till next week, I don't want you to wait either. Come talk to me later. Be very happy or any other believer that is around you. But if you already are a disciple... How might Jesus want you to grow as a disciple and who makes disciples? What what might your next step be? So start as a disciple just by praising God for your salvation. He is the only Savior and Lord. He's the one that saved you. He is the only one who's going to empower you to make these next steps. And then ask him, reveal the next steps to me, Lord. Reveal how you want me to walk in dependence and devotion to Jesus. Maybe that starts with you really grabbing hold of this definition of a disciple because you've maybe been believing a false definition about it and it's keeping you from making disciples of the people around you. Maybe do some further study this week. So we've compiled, I've spent a lot of time compiling 
resources to put on our website, oakhillfellowship.com slash the way. And, and there's, there's a reading plan on there. There's videos that help you. Uh, there's there's a, a reader there that talks about, every, it has every major passage that contains the word disciple. So if you want to dig deep, there is no excuse to not dig deep on this one, okay? Just go ahead, dig into that, and start chewing. Our reading plan is, is there as well, and I just encourage you, like that is, that is like the most basic way to, to get involved in this study for yourself. But ultimately, Jesus doesn't just want you to know what a disciple is. He wants you to make disciples. He wants you to make disciples. Ask him how he wants to use you in the life of someone else to help them encounter Jesus, to point their life to Jesus. He wants us to take these next steps together as a church. Are you in? Let's ask him how he wants to lead our church in that pursuit over the rest of this year. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the immense privilege that it would be to come to you through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. We, we thank you that we get to call upon you as Father because of him, because of the work that he has done to live and die and rise again on our behalf. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. Show us the next step that you want us to take in following Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who have seen today that they have just been part of the crowd. Would you do something new in their heart? Would they not just jump ship and, and go join another crowd, Lord, but would you call them to be your disciple? That's your work, Lord, not mine, so I pray that you would do it. I pray for those who are new to the faith, that you would strengthen them, that they would be encouraged in their walk this morning. Lord, I pray that you would work in those who are growing and who are mature. That you would give them opportunities to make disciples of the people around them. And that you'd use our church in powerful ways. That, that many in Solanco would come to know Jesus. That many around the world would come to know Jesus because of the work that you are doing here even this morning. Just take a moment and ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want to grow me? What's the next step that you would have for me? And then commit to that step. Commit to devotion and dependence in that step. None of us have arrived. We are all still growing. 
as the Lord reveals this to us, let's sing. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.